Well, guys, it's good to be back in the United States of America. <laughs> I enjoy being in El Salvador, however, last week. And if you're on Facebook, you saw some of the pictures. But if you aren't on Facebook, I'm going to show you some of the pictures today. But I do want you to know that uh, it is good to be back. Now, when uh, El Salvadorians worship, first of all, the uh, they are not in tune whatsoever, okay? I just want you to know that right now. There's no instrumentation other than an occasional guitar or maybe an occasional tambourine. But I want you to know that they do have us on volume, absolutely. And uh, when they sing to the Lord, it's, of course, it's in Spanish. And uh, when they're singing to the Lord, uh, they say things like, Si, Señor, and this is, Yes, Lord, okay? And I thought, Si, Señor, is like, Yes, Sir. And I said, what's the difference between yes, sir, to a man and yes, sir, to the Lord? They said the difference is that when you say yes, sir, to a man, you say, si, senor. And when you say yes, sir, to the Lord, you sing, si, senor. And it's so powerful, and uh, they are excited about worship, I'll tell you. Now, our friends in El Salvador that we have partnered with for several years now, uh, we as a church give 10% of what we have an offering to missions, all of which goes to church planting around the world through Stadia here in the America and also as they plant churches in Ecuador and so on, and then also to Lifeline Christian Mission, which is our partner in El Salvador. And of course, we've had Jose at our church twice, and, uh, and he leads the ministry in El Salvador. But our church is now going to be partnering with one of their principal churches, they have about 15 principal churches. A principal church might be a building, it might not be a building, but it's about 70 or 80 people that meet in rented facilities all over El Salvador. And then they have now 79 house churches. And so many of the people from house churches can't go visit a principal church because it's just too far. But our church is partnering with a church called Chow Chuapa. And uh, we are going to be partnering with Regina and Ruben. And Reuben is the preacher there, and Regina is his sweet little wife who is pregnant. She is due in January. So I thought I would do the typical missionary thing here for a few minutes as we start and show you pictures of what we uh, saw in El Salvador and mostly of the church in Chauchuapa. So check this out. This is the building. It's the only building that Lifeline Christian Mission owns in El Salvador, and this is it. So the building is this block and a tin roof. And that right back there in the back is their bathroom. It's an outhouse. I had to go when we first got there until I went in there and I decided it just was not worth it. All right? Um, one of the things I would love for our church to do is to be able to build them bathrooms so they actually have a couple bathrooms that work. The other thing I'd love for them to do is, for us to do, is their preacher and his wife, he, they take a bus. They live an hour away from the church. And so they take a bus to get there. And they have a baby on the way, and we are going to try as a church to help them build a little 12 by 12 room, couple rooms for them and their baby so they can actually live on site at the church there at Chauchuapa. This is the inside of it, and you could just see everybody came because we were visiting from America and they were excited about it. So next, uh, this is uh, again the same, same view, uh, different view I mean, go ahead. This is me just saying, hey, welcome and greetings through an interpreter. I did have a, a little bit of Spanish. Go ahead. This is them doing a pinata, and you can see the dirt floors or the or the hard, the rough floors. Go ahead. This is a blow-up that they rented, and uh, you can see the yard. They eventually want to do a soccer field out there so they can have people from the community come. 
And this is Hannah and I talking to a group of teenage girls who absolutely tried to talk to us in American and English, and we absolutely tried to talk to them in Spanish, and we, did, we didn't do bad through Google Translator. Thank you for that. Next, this is some of the kids signing up for a child sponsorship. One of the ways our church is going to partner with Child Chihuahua is they have 41 kids that go to church there. And so in the spring, as they get their packets together, we're going to sponsor those children. And the, the money that goes to that will go to uh, the church so that the church then can meet the needs of those children within their church family and those that they reach out to. Uh, additionally, I would love for us as a church to be able to take a trip next July to be able to bring down gifts for the children. And, uh, but anyway, this is them uh, coloring their maps of El Salvador, and I got to see the faces of every one of those 41 children that we're going to be sponsoring. Next, this is me praying for Reuben and Regina. He d- he's not just cool. Uh, he has sunglasses on because he got hit in the, ro- uh, in the eye with a rock, and it blo- broke a blood vessel, and so he's wearing that. But that's his wife, uh, Regina, who is uh, pregnant due in January. And that's me and Hannah. Next. And then uh, us communicating with them and blessing them. And this is me preaching. Um, I actually had a different uh, sermon planned, but uh, I brought out the laptop because I realized they had different needs than what I was going to preach to. And this is where they do children's church. They all grab their chairs, they walk across the, the dirt, and they go underneath a tree. It's a children's church tree, so they're, they're there on their way. And then this is them having children's church. Next. And they're, still, they're praying. Next. And these are some of the children that we're going to be sponsoring. And just so super sweet family. See that little pink outfit there on the bottom? Lisa gave me a bag of clothes to take. I knew what was going to happen. Um, as soon as they gathered around, I gave out clothes. The next day we went back for church, and all the moms had their kids just dressed up in these clothes with the little pigtails, and they all matched. And this is the last slide I'm going to show you. This is a different church. This little guy over here is named Alejandro. And Alejandro's church is at St. Ju- uh, Julian, and our friend uh, Roger Hendricks up at Southwest Church, who went on this trip with me, he sponsors Alejandro. Now, I was with Alejandro three years ago, and uh, he called me up as well as the other leaders, and I don't even know how they pulled this off, but they made these plaques. So Actus Christian Church, and then a scripture verse from Psalm in Spanish. But he handed this to me, and of course they blessed, uh, this is his wife, Zulema, but they blessed Hannah as well, and she came uh, with us. But when he gave me this plaque, this will tell you the spirit of the people of El Salvador as well as their appreciation of what happens from Axis Church as we partner with them. He says, three years ago, you came to El Salvador. And three years ago, you blessed us and encouraged us. And he said, uh, three years ago, we had a son. And we were trying to figure out, what were we going to name our son? And he said, we liked your church, and we were inspired. And so we liked the name Axis, so we named our son Axel after your church in the United States, Axis Christian Church. And I just thought that was such a cool thing. I, and uh, I told him I was surprised they didn't call him Steve. But whatever, you know, it's cool. Axis is cool, but, you know, um, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. But, um now, I was so blessed by that because it, w- it just tells you the spirit of the people in El Salvador and also the, our, their appreciation of us in the United States. And so we now officially have a child that's named after us, and, uh, and so we're, we're blessed by that. Let's, uh, let's pray together, can we? God, thank you so much for what's happening today around the world in your name. And God, uh, in El Salvador this morning, they're taking communion just like we did. 
They're baptizing people just like we are. They're loving you, God, just like we are. And God, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray for them as they're leading and as they're reaching literally hundreds and hundreds of people in El Salvador who have tremendous needs, and yet they, they make it a priority to be in church, even though they have to take a bus or they have to walk. God, they make it a priority to serve. They make it a priority to love you. And God, I just am uh, humbled and honored to be a part of that ministry. And God, I pray that we as a church here in the United States would be able to bless them as a church in El Salvador, and that in some way we would make their life and their ministry a bit easier as they seek to serve the people in El Salvador. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I'm going to continue the series that Josh started last week, and uh, we are calling it Christmas Dynasty. And uh, if you think that your family is dysfunctional, just look at Jesus' family. Matthew chapter 1, the lineage of Jesus, name after name, and that lineage are people with tremendous challenges. And uh, it reminds me of another family. And maybe you guys can, uh, can appreciate this. Check this out. Well, you think you've got it bad. You think you've got a dysfunctional family. Well, when you look through the line of Jesus and you look at the dysfunction in his family, you see prostitutes, you see sinners, you see people without faith in God, you see people with tremendous faith in God. 
And so we don't have time to go through every name, but we picked three or four of the top names in the line of Jesus. And today, what I want to do is tell you a story. It's a story that you might be familiar with, but it's a story of of a woman named Ruth. This story was so popular in Jewish tradition that it was kind of like for the Jewish community reading the story Twas the Night Before Christmas or whatever story you read with your kids during the Christmas season. And this story takes place during one of the darkest periods in the history of Israel. The book of Judges is an appalling letdown after the glory days of Moses and Joshua. And now here come the Judges. And we read into this the dismay of an entire generation. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 said they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They didn't know the crossing of the Red Sea. They didn't know the miracles. They didn't know Mount Sinai. The people of God in just just a very short period of time knew nothing of the Lord nor what he had done for Israel in the time of the judges. And then there was a famine in the land. Now, maybe that was a judgment from God, but the times were not good. Now, into that story then comes the story of Ruth. And we're introduced to the first character in this story. His name is Elimelech, and he was caught in a place where his family was hungry and had a choice to make. Moved to a foreign country where they did not know God, or, and they moved away from their family and his heritage and all of the land that God had promised them, that God had promised to take care of them, or he can move away from that and move into a land that does not know God. And Elimelech makes a tragic decision as the head of his home, and it has far-reaching implications. Here is a 3,000-year-old example of somebody who did not count the spiritual or, econ- or the cost of the economic decisions he made. He decided to move away from God, and therefore it affected his family. Ruth chapter 1, verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech. Now, that means my God is king. And names were important in the Old Testament, but for whatever reason, he didn't live like his God was king. He moved away to a foreign land. He wanted to try to survive there. Ruth 1, 2, his wife's name was Naomi. Now, her, wife, her name means pleasant or sweet or sweetheart. Naomi is a keeper. And then in Ruth chapter 1, verse 2, we read the names of their two sons, Malon and Kilion. Bizarre names for kids because you know what those names mean? Sick and dying. Sick and dying. That's what they named their two boys. It would be like if I named my two boys, instead of Jason and Benjamin, if I named them bird flu and walking pneumonia. That was the kind of the deal. Weird names for your kids. And uh, now, by the way, guys, if you want sissy boys, you would name them Dr. Quinn and Medicine Woman. But anyway, but so here we are, and they've got these two boys, sick and dying. And Ruth chapter 1, verse 3 says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Why did Elimelech move to Moab? Because he was trying to avoid death. But he ended up dying anyway in Moab. Not only that. But uh, his boys also died. Surprise, surprise. When you name your boys sick and dying, you need to know that they're not going to last long. And it did. Verse 5, they died. And so the boys died. The father died. And then we get introduced to the real character of the story, Naomi and then Ruth. The two boys had married in Moab. They had married Moabite women, people who were far from God. Orpah and Ruth, they are the daughters-in-law. Now, in this culture, like many still today, there was no help for widows available. No welfare, no churches in Moab, no one to help them. And the Moabites hated the Israelites anyway, 
So these two women are going to be in real trouble. And Naomi says, ladies, you stay here in Moab. You find Moabite men, and I'm going to move back to my homeland in Israel. After losing everything, she decides uh, that she just needs to move back home. Naomi basically said, go back to your own gods, go back to your own people, and uh, I'll go back to Israel. Not the best way to win Ruth over to God-fearing relationship. But Naomi doesn't care. She's given up hope. And so Orpah agrees to stay, but Ruth, her daughter-in-law, refuses to leave Naomi, and even if it means moving to a foreign land back in Israel. And verse 16 says, Ruth says, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, where have you heard that verse before? Sometimes at weddings. Sometimes it'll be like a special relationship between that man and that wife, and they'll read this passage, where you go, I go, where you stay, I will stay. That's really a misinterpretation of this passage. It'd be better if the couple was on the stage and the mother-in-law was down there and the bride-to-be turned to the mother-in-law and said, where you go, I'll go, where you stay, I'll go. That's not a tradition that's going to catch on, but that would be the the actual context. Beth Moore said once, I think Ruth, the pagan from Moab, had more faith in God at this moment than Naomi, the Israelite. There was something in Ruth that knew, despite her mother-in-law's despair, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, was not a God who abandoned the needy or left them bitter and alone, as Naomi claimed. Naomi became bitter. Rather, Ruth trusted this God, the God of mercy and the God of grace and the God of compassion, the God who redeems. Naomi was rejecting him. Ruth then decided to accept him. And so Ruth and Naomi make a difficult decision to go back to Israel. And they go across the mountains, and guess where they end up? A little town called Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, we start figuring out why this story is so important. Bethlehem, a town of less than 200 people. And so when Naomi returns, it's big news. A lot of people start to talk. If it was a high school reunion, they would look at her, they would look at her high school picture in the yearbook, and they would say, time has not been good to you, Naomi. The dark lines, the bitterness in her face would be obvious. And in fact, her name, she said, as they said, oh, Naomi, your name means pleasant or sweet. Naomi said, no, don't call me that anymore. Because God has made me bitter, not sweet. And in verse 20 it says, The Almighty has made my life very bitter, and I I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And the expression on her face is an expression of anger and bitterness. And here's what the message is called today. Jesus is for the broken. Because Naomi was broken before God, she was broken because she had lost her husband. She was broken because she had lost her two sons. And Ruth is a picture also of a person who could have been broken, losing her husband, moving away from her family in Moab, and now going to a distant land. And I wonder if this Christmas, if this story is starting to sound familiar to you. 
you just reach a point in life where it feels like what you had hoped for, what you felt like God was going to do for you, how he was going to deliver you, it has not worked out. And so you read the story of the book of Ruth and Naomi, and here's your question. What is this story really about? Because I'm beginning to see myself in the story of Naomi as she is broken. She's disheartened, and I'm beginning to see myself in that picture as well. And so you see Naomi and Ruth, and they come back to their homeland, to uh, Naomi's homeland. Gerald uh, Stitzer was in a car accident one time. He was hit by a drunk driver in a minivan. He lost three generations in that accident. He lost his mother. He lost his wife, and he lost his young daughter, but he survived. He wrote a book about going through that journey called Grace Disguised. I like that title. And here's what he says. He says, the experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of your story. The defining moment is your response to that loss. The story doesn't have to be about loss. The story is about your response to loss. In other words, we don't get to decide what happens to us in life, but we do get to decide how we're going to respond to it. Are we going to be bitter or are we going to be sweet? Are we going to deal with it with kindness or are we going to deal with it with anger? And that's the story of Ruth and Naomi. Verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, in case you didn't already know. By the way, it tells you seven times in this passage that she's from Moab. She's the pagan from Moab. I think they want you to know that. And her daughter-in-law, they arrive in Bethlehem as barley harvest was beginning. So friends, there is reason for hope. They're coming back to God's land. How will they survive? Barley harvest time. Interestingly enough, Long before the government decided to take care of people uh, who couldn't take care of themselves, God actually commissioned the church to do it. And uh, that was the Old Testament system. It was written in the book of Leviticus. For those who were destitute, they were allowed to pick up in the fields of grain, they were allowed to pick up sheaves of grain that were left by those who were harvesting the grain. Whatever they left over, poor people could come and get. And so verse chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabite, there it is again, seven times. She then, we find out, goes out into the fields. And she says to Naomi, let me go in the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who is left. And maybe in someone's eyes, I will find favor. Verse 2 says, Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. She went out and began to glean behind the harvester. And as it turned out, I love those little words there. As it turned out, those key words in that passage tell you that this life is not about the bitterness or the hardship, that somehow in the middle of that, God had a plan. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, that's my favorite verse in the story. So the question becomes, friends, Do you really believe that God is providential in your life? Do you really believe that you can look back and see where God has been working in ways that at that time you did not understand, but today you do understand? Wouldn't it be cool if we could actually see how God was working in our lives? Wouldn't it be cool if we could see how all the intersections were coming together? But God doesn't always give us that. This is no coincidence. This is a God incident. And as the story unfolds, Not so coincidentally, she ends up in Boaz's field, a wealthy man of good repute 
who unbeknownst to Ruth at the time happens to be a kinsman or a close relative of Naomi. He's a kind and generous man. And we're told how Boaz is related to Naomi. We aren't, we aren't told how he's related to, to Naomi, but he is. And we're told very clear, clearly in Matthew's genealogy who, who Boaz's mother happened to be. As it turns out, Boaz's mother is Rahab. Rahab had been a prostitute, a Gentile, also not part of the Hebrew people. Rahab had helped the Hebrew spies, and it makes a statement of faith in their faith in God that even though she was an alien, God used her as well. God used Rahab, the prostitute, to help then bring about Boaz, who then eventually would be part of Jesus' line as well and would help redeem, as we're going to find out, Ruth. I hope that you are following all these names. And as a result, uh, this family was saved back in the Old Testament. And uh, here Boaz is, the son of Rahab the harlot, who perhaps because his mother uh, and her faith is now included in this story of Jesus. And I love how God puts all this together. Boaz is so kind to both Ruth and Naomi, and Naomi has an idea. She says, hey, Ruth, you need a husband. Boaz is nice. Anybody else have a mother or a mother-in-law that likes to fix you up, you know? And uh, hey, by the way, by the way, this happened to me and my wife uh, back, when, uh, back when I was doing an internship at Southern Acres Christian Church in Lexington. My wife wanted to marry a preacher. But her dad wouldn't let her go to a Bible college. She said, well, how am I going to marry a preacher if I can't go to a Bible college? And so every time a preacher boy would come through their church in some way, her mother would go, hey, he's a preacher boy. You should go for him. And she said, uh, well, there's one right there. Look, he's doing an internship at your church. And she said, you should write him a letter. And uh, she did. And that was in uh, August or, or August or September after I'd done my internship. She, my wife wrote me a letter. That was before cell phone days. And I looked her up in the pictorial directory because I didn't know her, you know. And uh, I wrote her back, and then we called and we talked. But it was because of her mother that Match made us. And uh, she said, you should marry. That's a preacher. And God had a plan far before, when, even though her, her dad said, you can't go to a Bible college. God had a plan to help put us together. And so here is Ruth, and here is Boaz, and God helped put them together. And Naomi uh, brought this plan. Uh, to, to fruition. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4 says, Ruth, I have a plan for you. He'll probably sleep on the threshing floor tonight after the party. And she said, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, all the guys in the room just perked up, so this is getting a little steamy here in the book of Ruth. But it's not really. This is not a hookup. This is just simply an act of kindness. And here they are, verse 9, uh, she uncovers his feet as to indicate, hey, I'm here, as to indicate an act of kindness. And it says, I'm your servant Ruth, she said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. And uh, here's where we get the understanding of this whole weird encounter. For us, our culture, we don't understand it. But putting a blanket over a woman was like putting a ring on her finger. It was a proposal for marriage. She's saying, I would like you to marry me. Not proposing, but she's asking him to propose. And she's being a bit forward. But Boaz says, wow, yowza. It's Hebrew for 
chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. And there is this really interesting thing then that's about to happen as they realize, hey, he's about to take her as part of his family. But there's something that has to happen first. He is a kinsman redeemer. And what that means is when a man fell onto hard times and was forced to sell his land, his nearest relative or the kinsman redeemer was called in to step in and purchase the land or buy it back from an outsider. Now, that may seem weird culturally to us, but this is an, the Lord was very interested in the Israelites keeping their land, and so they would allow another relative to take on that land and that property. So Boaz comes along and says, I will buy the property of Elimelech. I will take responsibility for Ruth. This was no small act. It meant he was saying, I'm taking her on, a Moabite woman, to be part of my family. And so Boaz then makes sure that he secures that. And he redeems not only the land, but he redeems the life of Ruth in the process. In verse, chapter 4, verse 5, Boaz says, On the day you buy land from Naomi, you also requi- acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Isn't that great? It's as if you go to buy a house and, uh, and, uh, and you realize you're a single guy and you realize when you bought that house, you got a beautiful, kind, loving wife to go along with that house. Well, then again, he also got the bitter mother-in-law. So it's not all roses, all right, guys? It's not all roses here. But verse 8 says, so the king, kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, uh, buy it yourself. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses. I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. And I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property, so that this name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. He is saying, I'll buy all the land. I will take care of Naomi. I will marry Ruth. I will honor the deceased husband. I will be the redeemer. And this is an amazing man. He had no legal obligation to do that, but he did it anyway. And he also got an amazing wife. Now, I love this story. I love this story because God, it's a story of God redeeming what is broken and what was hurting and brought it back to life. But I also want you to know this. Ruth and Boaz together as a couple had a baby boy. Verse 14 says, the woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a family guardian. May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better than you, will give you seven. Or who is who is better to you than seven sons? Has given him birth, and they have then a child. Naomi goes from being bitter to being a blessed grandma. She goes from no longer being Mara or bitter. She's back to being pleasant Naomi. Nobody wants a grandma bitter, right? But she goes back to being a grandma sweetheart for sure. And they had a son, and they named him Obed. Obed means worshiper or servant of God. And friends, check this out. Here is where the whole Bethlehem thing comes together. Because Ruth and Boaz had a son. They named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And ultimately, this continued to carve out the line of Jesus from Abraham 
through Rahab, the prostitute, to Ruth and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and King David. And the Bible says that he will be born in Bethlehem, the town of King David. And God brings broken stories together and redeems them. Now, I love this story because it reminds me that in my own broken life and world, that God is my kinsman redeemer. He bought me with a price, the price that cost him so dearly. He bought me with a price on Calvary. He redeemed me from my sins. He paid that price, and now he offers life eternal in his eternal family in heaven. This story is a foreshadowing not only of the line and lineage of Jesus that led to his birth, but also it is a retelling of my own story, my own brokenness, my own hardship that God redeems and makes something beautiful out of it. And here's the good news. When you are in moments of hardship and brokenness, you need to remember that you have a redeemer as well that takes the difficult challenges of your life. And if you will allow him, he will take you from bitter to better. He will take you from someone who is heartbroken to someone who is redeemed and restored. The Bible says in the New Testament, we are just like cracked vases, cracked pots. But God takes and mends those cracked pots and allows them to be used for his glory. This is not just the story of Ruth. This is your story. And it's a beautiful story, isn't it? How God takes something so precious and redeems it. Listen to these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. You are no longer foreigners and strangers like Ruth the Moabite, but you are now fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. It said, God sent his son to do what? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive full rights as children. And since you were a child of God, you are also an heir with God. God took your life, a life of brokenness, and he redeemed it. And what I want to do today as we close, I just want to pray for those of you who feel like you're in that state of brokenness right now. Maybe at Christmas time you feel like you're in that state of disappointment. And I want to pray that you would begin to see with new eyes that God takes what's broken and he redeems and restores it because that's what God does best. God, I, I thank you today. I thank you for the story of Ruth. I thank you for the story of Naomi. And God, I know that Naomi saw her circumstances and became bitter. And who wouldn't lose your husband, move to a foreign land, your two children die? God, who wouldn't be miserable in that state? But God, then through the story of Ruth, Ruth, who was led from darkness to life, she was led from a pagan um, religion and ritual in Moab to a, a fear of the one true God. And God, you took her and you redeemed her. You used Boaz to, to buy her back, literally the family plot, and, and buy her back to to really a new life and a new marriage. And through that process, God, you redeemed Naomi as well. And through that, God, you ultimately brought Christ. And God, through this story, we're reminded of, of the fact that you use broken people. 
And that, God, you use people who feel like I can never be used again. And, God, there are people in this room today that have felt so broken, felt like they have disappointed you so many times. There's no way that God would ever use them for any meaningful ministry at all. But, God, if you can use Rahab, you can use Ron. God, if you can use Naomi, you can use a Nancy. God, you can take the the brokenness of our life and you can turn it around and you can make it into something redeemed, something beautiful, something precious, God. This story reminds all of us that you use broken people, that you redeem our story. And God, for those that are in the middle of a broken story today, I pray that they would leave this place and they would feel hopeful, they would feel refreshed. And even though they can't see the end of the story, God, I pray that we trust your providence today. That, God, there is a good end to the story. God, we love you. We thank you for not only working in the end of our story, we thank you for working in the middle of our story as well. And God, I pray for all of those today who at this Christmas season feel broken. And God, remind us today that you are Jesus for the broken. Jesus for the disheartened. Jesus for the lonely. And God, thank you that you're Jesus for the world. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you need somebody to pray for you today, uh, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, if you just want to meet down front, just right over here, just flip down. I'll pray for you. If there's more people that come, we'll have others come and pray for you. Um, but if you need someone to pray for you in your brokenness, that you can begin to see with God-like eyes, why don't you come today as we sing? Let's stand together.